This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. And what a week it's been. We'll start out with Jewish Telegraphic Agency. A historic day in Israel ends with a political compromise and big questions about the future by Felissa Kramer. Like hundreds of thousands of her fellow Israelis, Kelly Breakstone Roth's instinct on last Sunday was to take to the streets. The only wrinkle. She and her family have been in Brooklyn for the last two years, part of the diaspora of hundreds of thousands of Israelis living abroad. They couldn't just walk out the door of their apartment and join the sweeping nationwide protest that ignited after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fired his defense minister, who had called for a pause on proposed changes to Israel's judiciary. So they bought one-way plane tickets, set to take off at 2 a.m. on Monday, and land in Israel that evening. It was a very spontaneous decision, Breakstone Roth, an entrepreneur, said Sunday evening, last Sunday evening, as she ran errands to prepare her family of five for a trip of indeterminate length. But the sensation that we have to be there has been building up for quite a bit now. She likened the experience to that of Israeli military reservists who receive an emergency call-up notice known in Israeli jargon as Tzav Shmona, Hebrew for Order 8. This is a Tzav Shmona moment for anybody who wants to be there to be a Jewish and democratic state. By the time Breakstone Roth landed in Tel Aviv Monday evening, and that was Monday March 27th, conditions in Israel had shifted dramatically. Late night protests on Sunday, March 26th, that shut down a main highway and riveted Jews the world over had been dispersed. But protesters convened again on Monday in Jerusalem, where the parliament was waiting to hear whether it would vote on a key piece of the judiciary legislation. The country's labor unions had called a general strike, and everything from universities to McDonald's franchises to some departures at the Tel Aviv airport had shut down. Meanwhile, Netanyahu had spent last Sunday night negotiating with his coalition partners, trying to keep their government together despite a mounting sense that proceeding immediately with its signature legislation could plunge Israel into an unprecedented turmoil, possibly even civil war. By the evening, even the justice minister who threatened to quit if Netanyahu delayed the vote said he would respect the decision to pause, one that Netanyahu made official only as night fell. Netanyahu did not say what he had promised his partners to sign off on the pause, but a far-right minister said he had exacted permission to launch a civilian police corps. Earlier, breaking his public silence, the Prime Minister had tweeted, I call on all the demonstrators in Jerusalem, on the right and the left, to behave responsibly and not to act violently. We are brotherly people. Big questions loomed. What would happen when right-wing supporters of the judiciary reform, including a notoriously racist and combative group of fans from the Beitar Jerusalem Soccer Club, heeded a call to take the streets too? Would a delay satisfy protesters who have spent a dozen weeks articulating deep-seated grievances that in many cases go far beyond particular reforms? Would Netanyahu and his coalition offer any meaningful concessions before resuming the legislative process in the future? 
what would be the cost of the promises he offered to his most extreme partners in exchange for acquiescence. The answers to those questions will help determine what kind of country Israel will be after this crisis ends, whatever that is. But on Sunday night and Monday, the protesters and those watching them could be forgiven for taking a moment to bask in the sense that history was being made. What we witness in Israel is a historical revolution in the style of French, Russian, Iranian revolutions, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, tweeted Yossi Melman, a journalist who has covered military affairs for multiple Israeli newspapers. A historic night. Each of us will remember where we were tonight, tweeted the journalist and political analyst Anshel Pfeiffer. And whoever was not in the streets will say that they were. The head of the country's labor union, the Histradut, also used the word historic to describe the general strike he was supporting. Ahmad Tibi, an Arab lawmaker, tweeted in language drenched with history. He posted in Hebrew transliteration a slogan associated with the 2011 Arab Spring. The people want to bring down the regime. It's not at all clear that the Israelis who protested last Sunday and Monday will ultimately be satisfied. Revolutions don't always succeed, as the Arab Spring and countless other examples in history make clear. Many of the social and demographic forces that brought Israel to this moment haven't changed. Netanyahu has survived political crisis after political crisis before. In addition, while a substantial majority of Israelis oppose the specific judicial reform legislation that is now on the table, still, uh, many still say they believe some changes are merited. Israel's far right in particular still views a disempowered Supreme Court and as essential to achieving its vision of expanded Jewish settlement and control in the West Bank. Supporters of the judicial overhaul were framing the stakes as historic too, but casting the demonstrations as a threat to democracy. It is inconceivable that the minority will force its opinion with violence, and the creation of anarchy in the streets declared 17 leading religious Zionist rabbis in a joint statement calling on the government to push forward with the legislation on Monday. Yet, for Monday at least, the politically diverse anti-government coalition that has solidified over the last three months could exult in the power of the people. And at a time when some liberal Israelis are so alarmed by the country's political direction that they are packing up and moving away, the Breakstone Roths were coming home. This is a critical time in Israel's history, Breakstone Roths said before boarding. In terms of our daughters, we felt it was really important for them to know that we're doing everything that we possibly can to try to make an impact. She said she hoped to hear upon landing that Netanyahu was pulling the legislation, if only temporarily, then turned to real politic. Hopefully, if he does say it, he intends it and will be able to say that the demonstrations were a success, she said. And if he's just fooling, trying to do some sort of maneuver, and it's going to be ignited again. Next from JTA, at unusual counter-protest, right-wing demonstrators air grievances against Israel's court. Uh, Israel's courts by Ben Linfield. Jerusalem. After three months of demonstrations dominated by detractors of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial overhaul plan, supporters of the proposed reform took to the streets last Monday, that's the 27th of March, making their voice heard in Jerusalem and across Israel. 
Gathered outside the Knesset, Israel's parliament, thousands of pro-reform protesters, including settlers, bust in from the West Bank, sought to back Netanyahu and Justice Minister Yariv Levin, even as the prime minister announced his intention to temporarily suspend the plan. We're trying to create counterpressure to the demonstrations of the left, said Yisrael Antman, who lives in the Kokhav HaShahar settlement and was accompanied by his wife and five children. It was the first major demonstration by supporters of the Netanyahu government's now-paused legislation to overhaul the country's judiciary to sap the independence and power of the Supreme Court. Both proponents and critics of the legislation say it would benefit Israel's right, which largely believes that the courts are out of step with mainstream sentiment. They also share the view that the dispute is not just about how Supreme Court justices are appointed, but about what values will prevail in Israel. Israel cannot have a liberal approach devoid of Judaism, Antman said. If you destroy the Jewish character of Israel, we have no justification for being here. He and others at the rally offered a laundry list of grievances against the court, including the way it has deployed the 1992 Basic Law on Human Freedom and Dignity, which the court has at times used to combat discrimination against minorities. Antman repeated the claim that the court has used the law to prevent the expulsion of African asylum seekers, despite complaints from Israeli residents of South Tel Aviv. In fact, the court only limited the government's ability to lock up asylum seekers in a Negev facility. It was Netanyahu who brokered a third-country expulsion agreement, only to backtrack it on the next day. Entman's wife said bitterly that the court had expelled settlers, an apparent reference to the court-ordered evacuation of Jewish settlers trespassing on private Palestinian property. The massive demonstrations from right and left marked the culmination of a dramatic day in Israeli history. Following Netanyahu's firing of Defense Minister Yoav Gallant after Gallant urged a delay on the divisive judicial reform legislation, citing concerns about national security. The firing triggered an outpouring of public rage and ultimately led Netanyahu, for the first time since retaking office in December, to offer a compromise, promising to suspend legislation for at least a month and enter talks with opposition leaders. The larger demonstrations were by critics of the government, but pro-reform organizers said more than 100,000 people attended demonstrations on Monday, the 27th, across the country. In Jerusalem, more than a dozen cabinet ministers and Knesset members from coalition parties attended the rally, including Itamar Ben-Gavir, the head of the far-right Jewish Power Party, and Betzalel Shmotrich, leader of the Religious Zionism Party. The men were reportedly among the last holdouts opposing the legislative pause, and each addressed the crowd. The pro-government protests drew members of La Familia, a notoriously racist group of fans of the Beitar Jerusalem Soccer Club, alongside other right-wing activists. After the protest ended, several demonstrators made their way to Jerusalem's soccer park, where they clashed with police forces. In another incident in Jerusalem, protesters identifying as supporters of the judicial reform attacked an Arab taxi driver, injuring him and damaging his car. A theme of the pro-government protest was that the efforts to oppose the judicial reform legislation represent a form of election denial, a critique that government lawmakers had advanced 
citing their majority after last November's election. One man wore an Israeli flag as a cape and held up a sign that read, They are stealing the election. Yehiel Tzedak, an 18-year-old from the Har Bracha settlement, who voted for Netanyahu's Likud party, said the left lost the election and it's time for them to admit it. He argued that the battle over Supreme Court appointments is no more than an effort by the left to deny the right its ability to rule the country. Sadak, who said the plans, uh, he plans to study in a yeshiva before joining a military combat unit, offered a long list of grievances against the Supreme Court. It harms settlement, ties the hands of the army, and takes power that doesn't belong to it. And while Tzedak expressed support for Netanyahu's decision to suspend the legislative drive and to enable dialogue, he warned that if the prime minister drops the plan altogether, he, for one, will abandon Likud in the next election and vote for Ben Gavir's party. Netanyahu needs to know that he is indebted to a huge number of people who voted for him and the reform, said Tzedak. His friend, Yaakov Klein, who is also 18, said he was there not only to show support for the proposed judicial overhaul, but also for a greater cause. This is not just about the reform, said Klein. It is about control of the country, about whether the right can rule. Like many other supporters of Netanyahu's government, he feels sidelined in a society which he claims is dominated by the left. The left held on to centers of power like the army and the Histradut, he said, referring to Israel's largest labor union, which joined a call for a general strike to protest the government on Monday. Something has been exposed by the left's protests. That's when you take that when you take a little bit of cheese away from them, they burn down everything. The media Klein added isn't presenting the truth. It doesn't show the other side. Next from JTA, Israeli tensions spill over into Berlin at Summit of European Jewish Leaders by David I. Klein and Toby Axelrod. Berlin. Novelist Ruby Namdar's appearance at a major conference of European Jewish leaders wasn't meant to include a speech to an empty chair. But there he was last Sunday night addressing the chair he had thought would hold Amachai Chikli, Israel's Minister for Diaspora Affairs. Chikli had been scheduled to address the summit, organized by the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and the European Council of Jewish Communities, but arrived too late to speak and left early Monday amid a political crisis in Israel. In Israel right now, under this government, our house has become rotten and corrupt, Namdar told cheering conference attendees. We have lost all shame in Israeli politics. It must be restored. Namdar, an Israeli who lives in the United States, told JTA that he spoke out because he worried that others at the conference would not. A large part of the Jewish leaders of the world and of Europe are here, and I know that many of them, if not most, are very concerned, very worried, feel very alienated, he said. But they're not able to voice it because they're instinctively so used to supporting Israel, even though it has become harder and harder with every passing year. The episode reflected the degree to which Israel's political crisis is affecting Jews abroad, even reshaping what is discussed during convenings meant to elevate diaspora Jewish life. On Monday, the 27th of March, the saga took a sharp turn, after a historically large protest movement forced Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to delay controversial proposed reforms to the country's judicial system. 
It was the fifth edition of the summit and the first one held in person since the pandemic hit three years ago. The gathering included leaders and Jewish professionals from 35 communities across Europe and covered a broad range of topics, from how to combat anti-Semitism to how European Jewish communities have responded to Russia's war against Ukraine, from gender issues to the challenges of creating Judaism with no synagogues. Rates of emigration to Israel from parts of Europe have been high in recent decades in the wake of the Ukraine war, the rise of right-wing populism, and several violent anti-Semitic attacks by Muslim extremists and neo-Nazis. But some attendees at the conference said the recent crisis there was shaking the sense of safety that many European Jews associate with Israel. Democracy is a very important part in our lives, especially as young leaders, because we have been preached that it is such an important dogma. Joel Abio, a German-Jewish teenager and member of the youth group's BBYO International Board, told JTA. When, especially as young Jews, most of us identify with our homeland in Israel, and if we don't see that strong democracy there, we might question, is that even our homeland? Can we even identify with what they're doing? Jonathan Marcus, who is active in several Jewish organizations in Berlin, said he had seen people moving back from Israel to Germany in recent months because of the current climate, reflecting a trend of liberal Israelis considering immigration in response to the crisis. He also said he was worried about the religious agenda that some in Israel's right-wing government want to advance, doing so in the language most often used to describe concerns about religious law in Europe. I worry on a personal level. What can I do to make sure we don't wake up in a Jewish mullah regime, Marcus said. Will Israel be where my family and friends live and be part of my life? Namdar was not the only one to speak out against Chikli. A protest like the ones that have taken place across Israel and the diaspora took place outside the conference venue, the Hilton Berlin. Inside the hotel's dining room where Chikli was due to speak, Conference guests found flyers distributed clandestinely on each table announcing that hosting him was a slap in the face of hundreds of thousands of Israelis defending democracy for us, too. Alexander Oscar, president of Shalom, Bulgaria's main Jewish umbrella group, said at previous conferences he's attended it would have been unheard of to aim such statements at Israeli government officials. He said that though many European leaders are not Israeli citizens, we all have our families in Israel and consider the state of Israel our homeland. This is the first time ever I have seen this in conferences with other, you know, other countries, but never for the state of Israel, Oscar said. And it makes me happy because what it says is that Israel is a democracy and that it has a strong civil society. The protesting dovetails with a widening gulf he said that he and other Jewish communities in Central and Eastern Europe are finding with Israel. Over the past several years, we are seeing how in various ways the state of Israel is actually more prone to supporting the individual states in Europe, sacrificing the interests of the local Jewish communities, Oscar said. I'm speaking in particular about countries like Poland, like Hungary and Bulgaria nowadays. The local Jewish community is fighting with different groups and even with the authorities in terms of preventing the Holocaust distortion and also combating anti-Semitism. So we are ending up when the state of Israel is not defending the Jewish communities in areas where until five, six years ago it would have been impossible even to think of, he added. Next from JTA, U.S. Ambassador Biden will host Netanyahu after Passover, but no date set yet by Ron Campeas. 
less than a day after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu paused his push to enact a far-reaching judicial overhaul, the U.S. ambassador to Israel said President Joe Biden would likely host Netanyahu in Washington after the Passover holiday, according to Israel's army radio. In a tweet Tuesday morning, March 28th, Army Radio quoted Ambassador Tom Nidus as saying that an invitation would reach Netanyahu relatively soon, I assume after Passover. There's no question as to whether he'll come and meet Biden, Nidus said, according to Army Radio. They've been friends for 40 years. A report in Reuters, however, quoted an anonymous source as saying that no invitation had yet been extended. Nidus later told New York Times that no date had yet been set for the meeting. As Ambassador Nidus said, there is no plan for Prime Minister Netanyahu to visit Washington, a National Security Council spokeswoman told JTA. Israeli leaders have a long tradition of visiting Washington, and Prime Minister Netanyahu will likely visit at some point. Biden has criticized Netanyahu's judicial overhaul, which if passed, would sap the Israeli Supreme Court of much of its power and influence. His administration has also criticized the speed of the legislative push. The turmoil in Israel over the judicial reforms rattled U.S.-Israel relations and is seen as responsible for the unusual delay in the U.S. president inviting a new Israeli prime minister for a summit. Netanyahu, who led Israel from 1996 to 1999, and then, from 2009 to 2021, returned to office in December at the head of a coalition that includes far-right parties. Monday night, in the face of massive protests and internal dissent in his coalition, Netanyahu backed down from his insistence on passing the first major piece of the judicial overhaul before Passover, which starts this coming week. He said he would negotiate with the opposition about the reforms and expected to return to the legislative process as soon as May. Two major reforms, which are now paused, would give the governing coalition the final say in the selection of some judges and would essentially eliminate the Supreme Court's ability to review Knesset laws. The courts are seen as a bulwark protecting vulnerable populations, including women, the non-Orthodox, Arabs, and the LGBTQ community. The Biden administration has made its unhappiness with the reforms known in ways that are unusually public in the history of U.S.-Israel relations, with Biden himself commenting on the issue. Just an hour prior to Netanyahu's concession, John Kirby, the spokesman for the National Security Council, spent 30 minutes on the phone with reporters saying the matter was an urgent one for Netanyahu to address. Kirby said the Biden administration was concerned especially by Netanyahu's recent firing of his defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who had joined calls for a pause on the legislation. We remain deeply concerned by recent developments which further underscored our view of the urgent need for compromise, Kirby said on the call. Kirby was peppered with reporters by question, uh, with questions by reporters about whether Netanyahu government officials would be welcome at a summit for democracy the Biden administration is convening this week. He was noncommittal. The summit is being held live and virtual. And next from JTA, Montreal's oldest synagogue building vandalized with swastikas by David Lazarus. Montreal. Vandals defaced Quebec province's oldest synagogue building with Nazi swastikas over 
the weekend, prompting a Canadian Jewish watchdog to call on Montreal Mayor Valerie Plant to do more to fight anti-Semitism. Leaders of the Bag Street Synagogue, located just off St. Laurent Boulevard in the Plateau Mont-Royal borough, at the former heart of Montreal's Jewish community, reportedly met Wednesday with Montreal's Police Hate Crimes Unit. Photos taken by B'nai B'rith Canada show swastikas spray-painted on the synagogue's front doors. The Bog Street Synagogue, or Congregation Temple Solomon, traces its history back to 1906. But it moved into its current location in 1921, where it has remained and become the oldest synagogue building in continental use in Quebec. It inherited furnishings from the historic Sha'ar HaShemayim Synagogue when that congregation moved to a new location in 1922, according to archivist Hannah Swarzakon. While formal membership has dwindled, the Bog Street Synagogue holds free high holiday services, free holiday services, that is, and welcomes tourists expecting, uh, welcomes tourists visiting to explore the city's former Jewish neighborhood. In the first half of the 20th century, a Jewish immigration boom led to the establishment of at least a dozen synagogues in the area. Bog Street is the only one that remains. Montreal's Holocaust Museum is planning to move into a new location in the neighborhood by 2025. While the congregation is small, the synagogue evokes Jewish history in Montreal and the attack on it is causing dismay in the community. Marvin Rotrand, a former city councillor who is now national director of the B'nai Brits League for Human Rights, wrote in a letter to Plant. He urged Plant to be more proactive in combating anti-Semitism. I am wholeheartedly with the Jewish community and I strongly condemn these anti-Semitic attacks which have no place in our society, Plant tweeted. The first Passover Haggadah in Ukrainian marks a community's break with Russia by David I. Klein. For Mikhail Stamova, the challenge of translating Passover's core text into Ukrainian started with the title. The Haggadah, the book containing the Passover story, starts with an H sound in both Hebrew its original language, and English. In Russian, the primary language of organized Jewish life in Ukraine, until recently there is no such sound, so the book has long been known there as an agata. Ukrainian does have an H sound, but the character representing that sound conveys a different sound in Russian, a G. So for many Ukrainian Jews, the cover of Stabova's translation will be read as Gagada. A journey out of that single sound reflects the complexity of the tasks Stamova took on to aid Ukrainian Jews celebrating Passover a year into their country's war with Russia. A musicologist from western Ukraine who fled to Israel shortly after Russia's invasion, Stamova was recruited to create a Ukrainian-language Haggadah a powerful sign of the community's rupture with its Russophone past. Stamova knew she wanted to base her translation not off the pre-existing Russian translation, but from the original Hebrew and Aramaic. That proved challenging because much of the text of the Haggadah is lifted from other sources in Jewish canon, but Jewish translations of those texts to Ukrainian are only underway now for the first time. At first, it was very difficult to start because we don't have the sources in Ukrainian, Stamova said. We don't have Torah in Ukrainian. 
We don't have Tanakh in Ukrainian. It was very difficult to know what words to find. Stomova's text, titled For Our Freedom, was released online earlier this month in advance of the Passover holiday that starts April 5th. This is one of a growing number of efforts to translate Jewish texts into Ukrainian. Translators affiliated with the Chabad Lubavitch movement have produced a book of Psalms and are working on a daily prayer book with their sights set on a full translation of the Torah. An effort is also underway now to translate a chapter of a newer text associated with Yom HaShoah, the Jewish Holocaust Memorial Day, in advance of its commemoration this year on April 18th. The absence of those texts until now, despite Ukraine's significant Jewish population, reflects the particular linguistic history of Ukrainian Jews. Under the Russian Empire, Jews living in what is now Ukraine in the 19th century tended to adopt Russian rather than Ukrainian, usually in addition to Yiddish, because Ukrainian was perceived as the language of the peasantry and conferred few benefits. That tilt became more pronounced after World War II and the Holocaust, when Yiddish declined as a Jewish vernacular and Russian became the main language of the Soviet Union. The history helps explain why, even as the number of Ukrainians speaking Russian at home fell sharply over the last decade, Jews remained largely Russian-speaking. Russian and Ukrainian are related linguistically, though their speakers cannot understand each other. Over the past 30 years, the vast majority of printed material used by Ukrainian Jewish communities, including Haggadahs, for Passover were created in Russian by groups such as Chabad, which is the main Jewish presence in both countries. But after Russia's invasion, those materials became a liability at a time when being perceived as having ties to the enemy could be dangerous. Indeed, Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year prompted many Russian-speaking Ukrainians to switch languages as a marker of national solidarity and sparked a push to translate Ukraine's Jewish life into the Ukrainian language. Ukrainian Jews always spoke Russian. That really was the norm. With the advent of the escalation of the war, that has shifted, and Ukrainian Jews who are in the country are shifting as fast as they can over to Ukrainian, said Karen Gershon, the executive director of Project Kesher, the global Jewish feminist nonprofit that commissioned the new Haggadah. Gershon said the Haggadah offers an opportunity to elevate a Ukrainian Jewish identity in other ways, such as by including tidbits about famous Jewish writers from the area that comprises modern Ukraine, who in the past might have been characterized only as Russian. In most of the Jewish world, the things that make a Haggadah unique are the special readings, Gershon said. The new Ukrainian Haggadah that uh, includes alongside the traditional text, she said, prayers for the defenders of Ukraine, prayers for peace in Ukraine, but also passages reclaiming writers who were always categorized as Russian, but because they came from places like Kiev, Odessa, and Berdachev, are more accurately Ukrainian. For example, the Haggadah includes passages from the 1925 book Passover Nights by Chava Shapiro, a Kyiv-born Jew and journalist who authored one of the first Hebrew-language diaries known to have been written by a woman. The additions offer an element of pride for some of the Ukrainian Jews who plan to use the new Haggadah. It is bringing you to the roots of those Jews who were living here before the Holocaust, said Lina Pesina, 
who lives in Sharkasi, southeast of Kyiv. It's about rebuilding the Jewish communities in Ukraine as Ukrainian Jews. Pesina said the switch to Ukrainian and the embrace of Ukrainian Jewish history in some ways echoed the themes of the Passover story, which describes the, Israelite fleeing, the Israelites fleeing slavery in Egypt. It's like an exodus for us. It's not comfortable, but because we get used to what we get used to. But we have to be proactive. We have to find our identity, she said. It took us 70 years of Soviet times to celebrate the Jewish holidays and Jewish traditions, and it took us 30 years to understand that we have to build Ukrainian Jewish communities too. Those communities are very much in flux a year into the war with millions of Ukrainians internally displaced or having relocated overseas. Stamova undertook the Haggadah project from Israel where she is one of an estimated 15,000 Ukrainians who arrived since February 2022. Stamova grew up in western Ukraine where the use of the Ukrainian language is more common than in the east. Like other Ukrainian like most other Ukrainian Jews, she still grew up speaking Russian at home. But her school, university and most of her life outside the home was conducted in Ukrainian. That made her a natural fit for the translation project, along with her background in Jewish liturgy, which she had studied at a conservative yeshiva in Jerusalem. Challenges went beyond phonetics. One frequent question was whether to use Russianisms that are widely known in Ukrainian and would be more easily understandable to a Jewish audience, or to use uniquely Ukrainian words. The most difficult section of the text, she says, uh, was Hallel, the penultimate step of the Passover Seder. Hallel is a lengthy song of divine praise, heavy with poetry and allegorical language, making for challenging translation work in any language. Stamova said she sought to stick to the traditional understanding of the text while also making some adjustments for the contemporary Seder attendee. For example, the section of the Haggadah about the four sons with varying relationships to Judaism is rendered gender-neutral and changed to the four children. And Stamova's translation, an adjustment that has been made in other languages too. Most of all, Stamova said she hopes the Haggadah offers some solace to Ukrainian Jews whose entire lives have been turned upside down. The Jewish tradition of Pesach is that we every year have to remember that we escaped from Egypt from slavery. It's very therapeutic, Stamova said, using the Hebrew word for Passover. How is it like therapy? Yes, we every year remember this difficult story, but then we have a plan for the future. We say next year in Jerusalem, so we have to have a plan. We have to see the future. Next from JTA, Greece arrests two men suspected of planning attacks on Jewish, site in, uh, Jewish sites in Athens by Gabe Friedman. Greek authorities arrested two men on Tuesday who were planning mass terrorist attacks on Jewish sites in Athens, including a Chabad outpost and a Jewish restaurant, according to reports. The Mossad Israel spy agency, which contributed to the investigation, told AP that the men who are Pakistani nationals are also part of an Iranian terror group. The third man is wanted for questioning. The group reportedly entered Greece from Turkey illegally four months ago. 
After the investigation of the suspects began in Greece, Mossad assisted in unraveling intelligence of the infrastructure, the methods of operation, and the connection to Iran, the Israeli agency said in a statement. The arrests offer the latest indication that Iranian operatives are active across Europe and frequently targeting Jews. Last summer, as a record number of Israelis visited Turkey, Israel's intelligence service, the Mossad, and its Turkish counterpart hunted through Istanbul for an Iranian cell that had reportedly been tasked with targeting Israeli terrorists. Also last year, the Washington Post reported that Iran had targeted prominent Jews and Israelis around the world, including the French-Jewish philosopher Bernard-Henri Levy. Joseph Schuster, the head of the Central Council of Jews in Germany, had also been targeted, according to German authorities, who recently also revealed that multiple unsolved shootings at German synagogues are believed to be connected to Iranian operatives. Next from JTA, in an American first, Manhattan jury indicts Donald Trump, who prominently invokes George Soros, by Ron Campeas. A Manhattan grand jury has indicted former President Donald Trump in connection with his alleged role in a payoff to an adult film star about their sexual encounter, making history and prompting Trump to once again invoke the name of a Jewish billionaire who is at the center of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. The indictment Thursday means a former president will be arrested and American first. Trump has called for protests in that event, which could come as soon as next week. Jewish security watchdogs have been on the alert for violence. Trump's similar calls for protests to overturn the 2020 election culminated in the deadly January, 20, uh, January 6, 2021 riot by his supporters at the U.S. Capitol. Within minutes of the news of the indictment leaking to media, including the New York Times, Trump, who is running for a second term in 2024, repeated his claim, now made daily in his campaign fundraising emails, that Jewish billionaire George Soros was behind the charge. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, who was handpicked and funded by George Soros, is a disgrace, Trump said in emails to reporters and in social media postings. Rather than stopping the unprecedented crime wave taking over New York City, he's doing Joe Biden's dirty work, ignoring the murders and burglaries and assaults he should be focused on. Soros, a Hungarian-born Holocaust survivor and financier, has been at the center of countless conspiracy theories for decades and was the target of a 2018 bomb scare carried out by a pro-Trump anti-Semitic attacker. He featured prominently in the conspiracy theories embraced by the gunman who massacred 11 worshippers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said on Twitter that he would not extradite, extradite Trump if Bragg tried to force the issue and mentioned Soros twice, which stood out because he did not name Trump or Bragg in his statement. Florida will not assist in an extradition request given the questionable circumstances at issue with this Soros-backed Manhattan prosecutor and his political agenda, he said. Bragg is among a number of liberal prosecutors backed in recent election cycles by Color of Change, a political action committee that Soros has funded. He was the largest donor to the group in the most recent election cycle, giving it $1 million out of the $4 million it raised. 
Beyond that relationship, there is no evidence that Soros is pressing any legal case against Trump. Jewish groups that track anti-Semitism and Jewish security said that they have been keeping an eye on Trump's recent calls for protests in the lead-up to his indictment, but noted that so far those posts have not attracted the groundswell of support that followed his past appeals. It is unclear whether the indictment or looming arrest will further galvanize Trump's supporters. There are multiple investigations into Trump, including by state officials in Georgia into the election interference and by federal authorities into the role he played in spurring the January 6th violence by rioters who believed his falsehoods about the 2020 election and into his alleged mishandling of highly classified documents. The details of the indictment are not yet public. One possible crime Bragg might be investigating is whether falsified records to cover up his payments to Daniels, which was made through his former lawyer, Michael Cohen. Next from JTA, Mitzvah Mania, a Los Angeles synagogue, is hosting a show with Jewish professional wrestlers by Jacob Gervis, Los Angeles. Colt Cabana, real name Scott Colton, is used to walking out to crowds of hundreds of fans as a member of All Elite Wrestling, a popular show that airs on channels such as TBS and TNT. This Sunday, he's wrestling at a synagogue. Temple Beth Am, located in Los Angeles's heavily Jewish neighborhood of Pico Robertson, is putting on Mitzvah Mania, a one-off show with mostly Jewish wrestlers. It's pegged to another event taking place this weekend, WrestleMania, the annual marquee event for the WWE, the country's largest professional wrestling series. Mitzvah Mania will break new ground for the synagogue with about 900 member families that typically holds more traditional programming, such as Shabbat dinners, adult education, offerings, and text study. We're trying to do something different that synagogues haven't seen before, said Ari Fife, the synagogue's director of programming and engagement. The show, which is being billed as the first of its kind, will include six matches, five of which will feature only Jewish wrestlers who perform at various professional tiers and one with a Jewish referee. In addition to Cabana, attendees will see former Jewish WWE stars Lisa Marie Varon, or Victoria, as she was known in the ring, Chris Mordetsky, a two-time National Wrestling Alliance champion known as Chris Masters, and later Chris Adonis. Certainly, in America, this is the first time there's been representation in every match on the card Jewishly, said Jeremy Fine, a Chicago-area rabbi who planned the event. The backstory started about seven years ago when Fine, who runs the Jewish sports blog The Great Rabino, went to his first independent wrestling show and saw Cabana, a fellow native of Deerfield, Illinois. Fine was living in Minnesota at the time, and he recalled telling some of his congregants about the show. When they suggested putting on a wrestling show at the synagogue, he thought the idea was crazy. Fine's former synagogue is still innovating. They recently built an ice skating rink. They were very persistent, Fine told JTA. We did it, and it was a huge success, and by our second show, we were sold out in a Minnesota blizzard on a Wednesday evening. Fine ended up hosting three wrestling shows at Temple of Air and Synagogue in St. Paul, uh, Paul with Israeli athletes and entertainers, Mitzvah Mayhem, Hanukkah Havoc, and Exodus. It turned into his own wrestling company, Second Wrestling, that puts on shows near his current pulpit in Chicago and around the country, including 
the event in Los Angeles. Mitzvahmania is Fine's most Jewish show yet. Fine had approached Betham about the event to tie it into WrestleMania, which rotates its location, and is this year being held at nearby SoFi Stadium. Fife said the synagogue senior staff was hesitant about the idea, even as they set out to hold more unique events. Fife, who himself grew up a wrestling fan, said there was initially a lack of understanding of what wrestling really is. For the uninitiated professional wrestling and the likes of the WWE and AEW is a far cry from Olympic-style wrestling. In addition to being athletic performers, wrestlers like Cabana are also entertainment figures, complete with detailed costumes and character backstories. Fife said once uh, everyone understood the storytelling aspect of the sport and were assured that it's not as violent as they thought, the idea was approved. Mitzvahmania is sponsored by a number of Jewish organizations, including Maccabi USA, BBYO, and the Jewish National Fund. Fife said Betham secured a grant from the Jewish Community Foundation, Foundation of Los Angeles to help put the event on. Fine said Jewish interest in wrestling has increased in recent years, in part thanks to Maxwell Jacob Friedman, known simply as MJF, the current AEW world champion and an outspoken and proud Jew. Earlier this month, for example, Friedman celebrated his re-bar mitzvah as part of an AEW Dynamite night on TBS. Jewish fans also cheered when Goldberg, one of the stars of the late 1990s and early 2000s WWE craze, returned to the ring in 2005. The overlap between Jews and wrestling extends beyond the ring. Fine said, arguing that the connection is biblical, from Jacob wrestling with an angel in Genesis to rabbis intellectually wrestling in the Talmud. If we just take that and put it into the context of wrestling, we at our core are storytellers, Fine said, we're listening to the stories and we're incorporating them into our lives and we're building up. And so wrestling is the greatest platform to struggle, to wrestle, and to very much create stories that present a narrative for us to think and root for what's good and boo what's evil. That's the story of Purim. He said it's important for rabbis to go beyond the usual work of teaching the weekly Torah portion or speaking about anti-Semitism in Israel. Many wrestlers Fine has worked with will approach him with questions about Judaism, from asking about holidays to basic, question about, basic questions about what a synagogue or JCC is. If we're really going to defeat anti-Semitism, if we're really going to be able to have intellectual conversations about the modern state of Israel, what better way to do that than rabbis getting into niche communities and really having those conversations and not just talking to the congregants who either agree or have heard it before? Fine said. And next from the New York Jewish Week, a Brooklyn concert will celebrate the forgotten history of women canters by Julia Gergely. Jeremiah Lockwood, the singer, composer, and frontman of The Sway Machinery, is preparing for an upcoming concert by doing a lot of talking to ghosts. These ghosts are those of the Jewish women singers and canters of the past century. As it happens, many women, not just men, have made deep contributions to Jewish spiritual life and music, but their stories were rarely told or preserved. Lockwood, 31, is hoping to rectify that. Sunday, April 2nd, at the Brooklyn Conservatory of Music, Lockwood unveils his newest composition of vocal music, Indie Weber Schule, 
in the women's synagogue, which is inspired by the legacy of these nearly forgotten Jewish women. Chazanus, cantorial music, is very important to me, said Lockwood, who is currently a fellow at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. It's the music that inspires my creative work, and it's part of my family heritage. It's just the essential musical organizing point for my life. Lockwood's father, Larry Lockwood, was a composer, and his grandfather, Jacob Konigsberg, was a renowned cantor. Growing up in a cantorial family, we were given the ideology that it was a male art form. That was a viewpoint that was held by both the male and female members of the family, but that's not true. A lifelong New Yorker, Lockwood has been leading efforts to recognize and revive the golden age of cantorial music, sacred singing by Eastern European cantors on records and in live performances that became widely popular on record and live performances among Jewish audiences in the 1920s. Last year, he produced Golden Age's Brooklyn Hasidic Cantorial Revival Today, a 10-track album featuring six Brooklyn cantors singing in the style of this music, which is operatic with lots of technical flourish and improvisation. Lockwood describes the past year studying women's voices, voices both cantorial and in a broader sense, as a shock of recognition. There were women who were prayer leaders in small towns in Europe, he said. There were women who were priests, professional healers, and exorcists, parallel to the Baal Shem Tov, the 18th century founder of Hasidic Judaism. There were women who were doing healing work. Since beginning his study, Lockwood said he's come to understand the historic power of women's voices in synagogues and spiritual places, on the Yiddish stage and radio, in community initiatives and in family life. They include women like Goldie Malofsky, who along with her father and six siblings formed the Malofsky Family Choir, which performed in concert halls and hotels. Malofsky went on to become an independent soloist who toured around the world in the second half of the 20th century. Another cantorial star was Chazante, female cantor, Peril Feig, who in the 1950s had a weekly program on the radio on WEVD, the Yiddish-language radio station in New York, and toured the eastern seaboard. It's not shocking. It makes total sense. It fits well with what I understand about Jewish life, he said of these women's success. The thing that's surprising is just how thoroughly it's been erased from contemporary Jewish life. I feel that is, that is a problem. Lockwood has mainly been using Jewish press archives to conduct his research and uncover the, these stories. Lockwood's piece, a tribute to these women's voices and stories, is the culmination of his studies. The lyrics draw upon American and Yiddish language ethnogra- ethnographies, descriptions of Jewish societies uh, both in Europe and the immigrant communities of New York, as well as Eastern European folklore, Yiddish vaudeville, and even contemporary music like that of the late Jewish composer Julia Eisenberg, a friend of Lockwood who died in March 21, 2021. The one-hour concert will be performed by singers Judith Berkson, Yulia Baeri, and Rachel Weston. It premiered the previous day in New Haven. It's important to me to get deeper into why their women canter stories disappeared, Lockwood said. There's a through line of stories that have been eroded from Jewish public consciousness that has to do with the roles that women play in sustaining the spirit life of, of the community. 
Next from JTA, a personal essay. My grandmother was a Sherlock Holmes of Yiddish song, but she couldn't solve the mystery of anti-Semitism by Avram Mlotek. When I was younger, my family sang Yiddish songs at almost every holiday and gathering. Funny songs, sad songs, songs about love, about the Holocaust, about hunger, about labor and resistance, the usual Yiddish fare. My bubby, Hanam Lotek, a Yiddish archivist and ethnomusicologist, collected hundreds of them with my Zeta, Yossel Mlotek, who became known as the address for Yiddish in America. Nobel laureate Isaac Beshevis Singer called them the Sherlock Holmeses of Yiddish folk songs for their investigations of Jewish music. We would gather by the piano in my grandparents' living room in the Bronx, with the piano being helmed by my bubby. Sometimes, my great-aunt, Malka Gottlieb, in whom my bubby compiled a collection of songs from the Jewish ghettos, then my father, then my uncle, eventually, each of the Eneklech, the grandkids, would have to sing in Yiddish. Of course I didn't recognize until I got older that Yiddish songs are an incredible porthole into history, while also testifying into the vivaciousness of a people nearly destroyed and a culture almost erased. It's through these lyrics and other stories from my grandparents that I learned the history of our people and the faith we had in America. This golden land where immigrants came to escape religious persecution. One famous song in particular was about the tragic letdown of this promise. The Ballad of Leo Frank was about the Jewish factory manager from Atlanta. In 1913, a 14-year-old employee at his pencil factory named Mary Fagan was found dead. Frank was accused of her murder on flimsy evidence. After a trumped-up trial, a biased jury found Frank uh, guilty after four hours of deliberation. The case was retried and appealed before the United States Supreme Court without success. Hundreds of thousands of petitions were sent to Governor John Slayton of Georgia, who eventually commuted the death sentence to life imprisonment. But months later, a bloodthirsty gang who were later to inspire the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan kidnapped Frank from jail and lynched him. Thanks to Yiddish music, we knew all these facts. The painful details of the Frank case were heard in melancholic Yiddish songs like The Ballad of Leo Frank and Lebensol Columbus, Long Live Columbus, which we as children crooned around the piano in the living room of my bubby's apartment. A Bibel hat man getracht, oif unzern a yidl. They made up a blood libel about one of our Jews, goes the lyrics from one of these songs. We sing these songs to learn about our history, hoping never to repeat it. But just a couple of weeks ago, anti-Semitic mobs weren't just part of his songbook. They were here, right in the heart of New York City. Frank's Frank's story is the subject of a new revival of a Broadway musical, Parade, starring Ben Platt, which opened in March at the Bernard Jacobs Theater. During previews, members of a neo-Nazi group called the National Socialist Movement rallied outside the theater, handing out leaflets and accusing Frank of being a pedophile 
and a murderer. Mostly they were there to stoke fear and rekindle the same Jewish hatred that cost Frank his life more than a century ago. This is only the latest example of what has been an alarming growth of anti-Semitism in the United States. Jews who grew up learning or singing about blood libels in Russia have always slept with one eye open, haunted by the fear that anti-Semitism would, would rear its ugly head here too. Just last week as I entered the subway in Midtown Manhattan, I was verbally accosted by a man who lowered his shirt collar to show me his swastika taboo, a tattoo, and so the story goes. As Passover approaches, the words of the Haggadah come to mind, Behold Dor Vador, in every generation. In every generation, enemies emerge, and the responsibility to rekindle learning and reclaim identity falls upon us, each in our own unique way. It feels fitting, then, that my grandparents' anthology is now accessible to a whole new audience. The Yossel and Hanam Lotek Yiddish Song Collection at the Workers' Circle went live this week. It is a searchable, comprehensive database of Yiddish music and song, spanning centuries, genres, artists, and more, bringing my grandparents' anthologies online. Hundreds of Yiddish songs, including the Leo Frank Ballad, can be freely accessed thanks to a thorough digitization process overseen by my brother, Alicia Malotek, who served as creative director for the website. Sponsored by the Malotek family, this new website is a loving collaboration between the Arbiter Ring, the Workers' Circle, and the Malotek family, and will ensure Yiddish song and, in turn, Jewish history never cower in the face of prejudice. As Alicia describes the music collected on the website, it is an essential record of our people, the richness and resilience of our culture. My grandfather died in 2000. Hannah died in 2013 at age 91. Bubby's piano now lives in my father's office at the National Yiddish Theater Folkspine but we still come together around song. In fact, it was my cousin Lee who recently reminded us of the Leo Frank song he learned from my uncle in an Arbiter Ring shul or school. This Thursday, my Bubby's sons, her grandchildren, and even some of her great-grandchildren will participate in a tribute concert to her at the YIVO Institute of Jewish Research, where Hannah served as the music archivist for decades. This in-person free concert presented in collaboration with Carnegie Hall and which can be streamed digitally will include family friends who also happen to be some of the most special Yiddish singers of the day, including Joanne Bortz, Sarah Gordon, Elmore James, Daniela Rabani, Eleanor Risa, Lawrence Glomberg, and Stephen Skybell, who played Tevye in Fiddler Auf and Dach the Yiddish production of Fiddler on the Roof. Now is as welcome a time as any to celebrate Jewish life, learn a Yiddish song, and discover the lessons of history along the way. Avram Lotek is a rabbi, cantor, therapist, and author based in New York. He is the proud grandson of Hannah and Yossel Mlotek. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.